0: This podcast is sponsored by The Christian Way of Life, the new book from Eric Alexander and Alliance Publishing. Find it online at reformedresources.org. What is the Christian Way of Life and how can we live it? Some may reply with a list of do's and don'ts, but we need far more than a lecture. We need a Savior. In his new book, The Christian Way of Life, Eric Alexander leads readers down the radiant corridors of Romans 12 through 15, showing how the gospel of redeeming grace empowers us for holy and acceptable service to God. There is no secret in Christian living in a wasting world, only a simple truth. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alliance Publishing is excited to share this new book with you order your copies directly from the alliance's online resource center reformedresources.org that's reformedresources.org also available on amazon in paperback and ebook order your copy today welcome to hear the word of god The online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander.
1: Chapter 5 of Isaiah. This evening, chapter 5, verse 1, which is divided into two parts. Uh, Chapter 5 is first of all a song in verses 1 to 7. And then a series of warnings from verse 8 to the end. First one, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not that I have done for it When I looked for good grapes why did it yield only bad Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house, and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A four-hectare vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine, they have hearts and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth, without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low, and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness." Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people His hand is raised and he strikes them down The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets Yet for all this his anger is not turned away His hand is still upraised He lifts up a banner for the distant nations He whistles for those at the ends of the earth Here they come swiftly and speedily Not one of them grows tired or stumbles Not one slumbers or sleeps Not a belt is loosened at the waist Not a sandal thong is broken Their arrows are sharp All their bows are strung Their horses' hoofs seem like flint Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind Their roar is like that of the lion They roar like young lions They growl as they seize their prey And carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. As if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. Now if we look back over the early chapters of Isaiah, which we've already studied in two other evenings We obviously would recognize that chapters 1 to 5 are often described as introductory chapters or oracles of Isaiah. Chapter 1 provides us in many ways with an introduction, a general introduction to the book as a whole. Chapters 2 to 4 provide us more specifically with a contrasting picture of what Israel is called to be by God and by contrast, what she has turned out to be in terms of her history. Now, chapter 5 brings us back to reinforce the truth of the present condition of God's people, and it really is in these two parts that I pointed out to you. First, a song about Judah, and secondly, a warning to Judah. Throughout the whole of Isaiah, you get this kind of double picture of on the one hand, what God has called his people to be, his purpose for them, his intention in choosing them and drawing them to himself, and then what they have in fact become. Now here in chapter 5, we are really dealing with this second emphasis, what God's people have are in fact now, which in so many ways breaks God's heart. That's why the first part of chapter five, I think, is in a poetic form. It's a kind of lament that God is singing, a lamentation about the condition of his people. It's in many senses a parable, and you will notice How the people of Israel are likened, in the way parables do, to a vineyard. Here is a very common, ordinary thing that the people of Judah would see all around them every day, and they knew a great deal about the cultivation of vineyards and what they were for and why you spent so much time and money and energy on them. And God comes to them now to sing a song about his vineyard. What is his vineyard? His vineyard is the people of Judah. And so he comes at the end of the song in verse 7 to say, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. Now, the warning which begins in verse 8 is elaborated in six specific warnings of particular ways in which the people of God are offending him. And they each begin with the word, woe. Verse 8, verse 11, 18, and 20, 21, and 22. You would notice it as we read. And so there's the general structure of the chapter. It's first of all seven verses which are Jehovah's song about the vineyard on which he had spent so much of his energy and time and labor. And then the pronouncing of warning words of judgment to his people uh, in these woes beginning at verse 8. You will know probably that the word woe is the opposite in the Bible of the word blessed. You look at the uh, sermon on the plain which is recorded in Luke chapter 6. And there Jesus does not just have beatitudes where he says blessed are the poor in spirit and so on. He said blessed are those who are like this, woe to you who are like that. Blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich. And it is the opposite therefore of this pronouncing people blessed. It is a word in a sense of warning of judgment and the displeasure of God. Well, now, let's look more particularly at the song in verses 1 to 7, a song about Judah. Now, it's obvious that it's Isaiah in the first place who is the singer of this song. If you look at verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. And he is speaking about God, obviously. My loved one is Isaiah's way of speaking about God. An interesting thing that Isaiah, who appears to be capable of such blistering prophecy, speaks of God in this way that is almost a tender expression. My loved one, he says, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. So it's Isaiah who is singing. He is singing about God and his people in the form of a parable regarding God as the owner of a vineyard. And the vineyard is the people of Judah. Now the emphasis again of the parable, do you notice, is the contrast between the high expectations and hopes of the vineyard owner when he chose and planted out and tended this vineyard and the heartache which he actually experienced and suffered over the tragic failure of this vineyard to live up to his expectations, to become what he had chosen and planted it to be. And that's the whole point of the song. We can see this in a little more detail if you look at the four parts of the parable that... Um, Isaiah brings to us as God's song that he has sung. And you will notice that uh, the language changes at verse 3, and instead of Isaiah describing what God has done, God himself begins to speak. But there are four parts to the song or the parable. First of all, the story in verses 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now there's the first thing about this vineyard. Its situation was perfect. I don't know if you know, but the perfect situation for a vineyard in the east was on a gently sloping hill for the simple reason, as those of you who are good gardeners will know, there was drainage, there was exposure to the sun, most probably, and it was the perfect situation for a vineyard to be planted. So he had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. The ground was ideal as well. It was fertile ground for growing a vine upon. Now the preparation in the second place left absolutely nothing to be desired. The situation was perfect. The preparation was perfect. Notice how he describes it in verse 2. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. That's the second thing one would do in circumstances like this. Any of you have ever moved into a house in a new area of ground altogether? You will realize that one of the things you do when you dig the ground over is to bring out all the great stones that have been buried in there. And this is what the vineyard owner did with his ground. He cleared it of stones. These were probably the stones that he built the watchtower with, most people think. Then he planted in it, halfway through verse 2, the choicest of plants. So it was not that there was an inferior plant in what the vineyard owner was planting. He then built a watchtower in it in order to be able to protect his vineyard. And then he created a winepress. He cut out a wine press as well. Now a wine press was really two kind of vats which were placed one above the other. The the higher one was the one in which the grapes would be placed, and when they were crushed there would be a little channel into the lower of these vats where the wine would flow into. And uh, this the vineyard owner built as he planted and created this perfect vineyard. And he looked thereafter with expectation for a crop of good grapes. Now, because the situation was perfect, because the preparation was perfect, the expectation was entirely reasonable and logical. Given the commitment of the owner to his vineyard and this is what Isaiah is saying to us about God in relation to his people you will notice his commitment is absolute he is absolutely committed to the business of bringing forth good fruit now the sting is in the tail the amazing thing to anybody who knew anything about viticulture is that rather than producing a crop of good grapes Such a vineyard, in such a place, with such attention, yielded only bad fruit. Now in the kind of ancient eastern world where these stories were the characteristic way of addressing people, you can just imagine there would be a great gasp from the people. They would be astonished at this particular end to the story. It's so unreasonable. And so now Isaiah quotes God's own words in the second part of the parable, the appeal that God makes. The prophet has undoubtedly gained the attention of the people, and again in typical Eastern fashion, he invites them to participate. I remember seeing this in one or two different places in the Far East, and I'm sure it's true also in the Middle East. What he is saying is this, you see, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. And he's actually asking them questions. Now, if this was in the East, the questions would be answered, you see. He would say, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And they would all answer, nothing, nothing. When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And they would all groan and say, A dreadful investment of time and money and so on. So he appeals to them. Judge, he puts himself, as it were, in the place of the person being tried by these people. Why has this happened, he says? What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Now he says in verse 5, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. And this is the third part of the parable. It is the verdict or judgment of God upon this vineyard. What he is going to do with his vineyard is to abandon it. Look at verse 6. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. But not only is he going to abandon it, you know the picture of the abandoned garden or the abandoned piece of ground, or if you've ever been a part of the world where there are vineyards, you can see abandoned vineyards which are overgrown with every kind of weed and thistle. But what he is going to do is to Hasten and assist the destruction of the vineyard. Notice verse 5. I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. That probably is a hedge of thorns to prevent marauding animals. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated. And in the last phrase of verse 6, I will command the clouds not to rain on it. So it's obviously God who is speaking because only God could thus command the clouds and hold back the rain and create total judgment on this vineyard. And finally, the explanation of the whole parable is in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice. Now, this is highly poetic. And there is no way of translating what the effect that there is here. If you listen to it in the Hebrew, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What Isaiah is saying is, he looked for mishpat, but found mishpach. He looked for sedakah righteousness, but found seaka, a cry. And there is a sense of the dramatic way in which God is looking for one thing and finding another. They are presenting to him something that might be a substitute for what he is looking for. But he looked for justice and he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness but heard cries of distress. And here amongst his own people God's vineyard has become abandoned. It is a false vine producing bad fruit. And that's a very important thing for us to hang on to. We'll see the significance of it right at the end, but here is the false vine producing bitter fruit. And God is not just disappointed like the vineyard owner would be, there is something running through this of the sheer heartbreak of God when he has committed himself utterly to his people and when they have turned out to be such a desert it's something we don't often think about, you know, about the heartache of God over the condition of his people. I suppose the, the parallel to it is in uh, our own experience, and so many people have had this experience of having committed themselves utterly to their own children and then discovering that their lives have become a barren wasteland. I suppose there are few things more heartbreaking for me to sit down with parents who are saying precisely that kind of thing. But my dear friends, I never come away from that situation. But I think how profoundly greater is the heartbreak of God who has lavished his infinitely costly care upon us, and he finds us barren and fruitless. Well, to the warning, that's the song, and it's a lament, really, and a parable of Judah's history. Now he comes more specifically to the warning from verse 8 right to the end of the chapter. And each of these warnings, as I say, begins with um, the word woe. One of the old writers recognizes that here Isaiah is really becoming more specific about the crop of bad fruit. Which has been produced in this vine. And so he entitles this passage from verse 8 to verse 30, A Bunch of Rotten Grapes. A very good description in many ways, although perhaps not terribly cultivated for us, but a bunch of rotten grapes. And cluster number one is in verses 8 to 10. And it is the fruit of greed. In this kind of life, where they have refused the commitment to God which he has had to them. They have not responded to his grace, you see. They have refused to commit themselves to him, to his will and purpose, to bring forth a harvest for his glory amongst his people. And the first cluster of bad fruit is greed. Notice it in verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now that really is a picture of the extremely wealthy in the nation who dispossess the poor out of their particular holding of land or of houses in order to ex their own wealth. They were extremely wealthy, but characteristic of what sometimes that does to people, they were never satisfied with it. So they joined land to land and they joined house to house. Now you get illustrations of this not just in Judas history, but in Scottish history. If you know anything about the history of the Highland Clearances, for example, you may know that this is precisely the kind of thing that happened then. On my last, last holiday, I was reading John Preble's account of the Highland Clearances, something that would make you ashamed of the sort of things that were happening in Scotland then. And I tell you, one group of people I was very ashamed of, and that was the ministers in some of these areas of Scotland who were bought bought by the building of large manses in order that they would preach to the people and tell them to get out of the land so that the landowner from England would come and put sheep in it. Now this is the kind of thing, you see, it goes on from generation to generation, of course. It is the aggrandizing spirit, the expansionist speculator who wants to enlarge his own domain at the expense of the poor the worst thing about it of course was that god had taught his people it was not just the morality of it or the legality of it probably was perfectly legal but the thing is that god had taught his people that the land he gave them was an inheritance from him and had to be held as a sacred trust from god Thus the importance of the continuity of the land within the family. That incidentally is why Naboth, do you remember Naboth who would not sell his vineyard to Ahab? Well Naboth wouldn't sell his vineyard because of the sacred trust of this piece of land and this vineyard which had been given to him by God. 1 Kings 21 is the area where you can read about that. But you will notice what happens in this situation because in verse 9 covetousness is itself self-defeating. Either it leads in verse 9 to decay and destruction. Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants or it leads to dissatisfaction and frustration in verse 10. You notice that verse 10 is really a description of how people fail to get anything out of the land, a four-hectare vineyard. Now that... uh, Is the kind of land that was of substantial size. The Hebrew is really a ten yoke vineyard, which means land plowed by ten yoke of oxen in a day. But uh, it's a substantial area of land, but it will only produce a bath of wine, which was a tiny amount for that kind of area of land. A homer of seed will only produce an far that is um, a smaller quantity than you would expect, of grain. A very interesting thing, it's really an agricultural illustration of how if you overwork certain areas of land, you get less and less uh, harvest from them. You know how if you force the land to produce more and more, you get less and less from it. And that's why the Sabbath principle of leaving the land fallow for a year is such an important one, and certain forms of agriculture uh, are counterproductive for that reason. But beyond the agricultural illustration, you see, there is the deeper truth that the covetousness which grips men's hearts produces in the same way it produces less and less satisfaction for more and more investment of time and energy and so on now that's the first area in which Israel as a people was suffering and it's a very interesting and significant one. I think it is basically the spirit of greed And generally speaking, when God is deposed in a society as well as in a life, greed is one of the things that replaces him. The second cluster of bad fruit is debauchery. In verses 11 and 12, notice how he puts it. And woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. You will know that early morning drinking is a particularly bad sign of addiction and dependence upon alcohol. And that's the whole point. Early morning, late at night, this is what they're doing. They stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Uh, They have harps and lyres at banquets and tambourines and flutes and wine. But do you notice why Isaiah speaks against their debauched life? It's not that he is a killjoy, and it's not for a moment that he is saying that their harps and lyres and banquets and tambourines and flutes are wrong. It's not actually this at all that he is speaking about. It is that as an evidence that, and now look at verse 12b, they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands, so that their lives have been made insensitive to God. And the great issues of life are ignored because of other things that have taken their place. Now, that really is the test, you know, of almost everything of this kind. I think it's important for us to say that Isaiah is not merely preaching a kind of temperance sermon here. What he is saying is things are manifestly wrong in the lives of God's people. For this reason, they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Their chief interest, in other words, is no longer in God. Now that's, again, a cluster of rotten fruit when our chief interest is no longer in God and our true joy is no longer in the work of his hands. Therefore God says he will lift them up out of their land and send them into exile now this is Isaiah's prophecy of one of the exiles that the people of Judah experienced in verse 13 their men of rank will die of hunger their masses will be parched with thirst and they are going to experience this dreadful national humbling that God is going to bring upon them and the end of it will be What he describes in verses 15 and 16. Man will be brought low and mankind humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. And the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. So there is the first cluster of greed. The second of debauchery. Verses 18 and 19. Do you notice the third cluster is blasphemy. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. Now what they are really doing, of course, is mocking God. This is mockery. It's the bitter cynicism of the godless which has invaded the lives, you will notice, of God's people. And what they are saying is, we don't see any sign of God active in his world. Let God get a move on. That's what they're saying. Let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach that the plan of the Holy One of Israel come. When I was reading that today, I was reminded of a friend of mine who told me about uh, an occasion he was standing in Hyde Park at Hyde Park Corner, you know, where on a Sunday afternoon everybody and anybody gets up to speak, and there are usually a number of religious speakers of one sort or another. One man stood up on this day on a a box that he had brought with him and uh, put up a notice, uh, the Anti-God Society. It said. And he said, uh, I am here today to defy God. And a considerable number of people left, one or two others, and gathered around him. He says, if there is a God in heaven, I blaspheme his name and call upon him now to come down and curse and destroy me. If he is God in heaven, let him consume me with fire and he stood there cursing God then he waited for a while he said see nothing's happened there's your God for you he said those of you are believers there was an ordinary little man standing down in front of him who spoke up and my friend heard him though probably not many other people heard him And he said, unfortunately for you, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. My friend said he went away that day and thought, here is the real problem with the spirit spirit of godlessness that says I can get off you know with all kinds of things resisting and rebelling against God but uh, Isaiah is able already to look into the days that lie ahead and to see that there is a day coming Whether soon or late, when God will vindicate his name. Notice these three other clusters of bad fruit. One is perversity, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is those who have become so perverse in their mind and thinking and spirit that they actually describe good as evil and evil as good and regard light as darkness and darkness as light and sweet as bitter and bitter as sweet. You say, what does that mean? Well, I suppose the most modern illustration I can think of of it is something that was in all the papers a number of years ago, long enough ago for some of us to have forgotten all about it, when D. H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover was publicly tried in the court in London as they attempted to get it stopped, publication maybe not a very wise thing for them to have done because it just assured the book sales uh, record uh, numbers but uh, the most significant thing that happened in that court was not actually the verdict at all one of the most significant things was the testimony of the Bishop of Woolwich at that time who said and I quote his words to you The adulterous relationship between Lady Chatterley and her gamekeeper is entirely comparable to the act of Holy Communion. Well, that's in the legal record. That's something he really believed, too. Bishop of Woolwich, a very genuine man, But it's precisely what Isaiah is talking about. It's not ancient history in Judah, you see. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Notice the next cluster is arrogance, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That is, who know better than God. Because that's what uh, really Judah was saying. They were wise in their own eyes. Wisdom was their thinking rather than God's will. I wonder if you've ever thought that every time we resist and refuse the will of God, that's exactly what we're saying We are saying, I know better than God how to run my life so that it will be happy and successful. Do you ever think of that? It's that spirit that Isaiah is speaking about. The last is injustice, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. That is the Kind of person whose greatness is really simply associated with uh, the drinking that they do, but their injustice flows from it, who acquit the guilty, verse 23, for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Then God begins to speak and to bring the warning of his judgment and from verse 24 right to the very end of the chapter what he is really describing is how he plans to bring the nation of Assyria to come and discipline his people he is going to call the enemy notice how he describes it almost in a humorous fashion in verse 26 He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. How can you see this picturesque way that Isaiah describes it? As though God were whistling for the Assyrians. They thought it was the Assyrians' idea to come and demolish Judah and carry the cream of their men away to exile. But it was actually God who was going to do it. Now it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That the one person, the people of Judah never feared through all their politics and all their arrangements that they were making with foreign nations. The one source from which they never expected trouble to come was God. Isn't that amazing? They feared the Assyrians, they feared the Babylonians, they feared the Egyptians, but they didn't fear God. We live, my dear friends, in a very similar time. There is little difference between what motivates us in our national life and what motivated them. And so God calls them to come. And you get this picturesque description um, throughout this part of the chapter. Let me close with this. This is a description of the vine that failed. It was a bad, rotten crop of fruit that was produced. But... God's purpose in choosing and planting a vine was not ultimately to be frustrated. And God marched through history from this time right down through the years before the coming of Christ with his heart set upon the production of the fruit that he had set his heart on from his people. And whereas here is the vine that has failed, history waits until the day when there comes from the lips of one who arose out of the tribe of Judah and said, I am the genuine vine. My father is the husbandman." Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bring forth more fruit. He is absolutely committed to this business of producing the fruit that he has set his heart on from before the foundation of the world. And it is when we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ that we discover that new fruit fruit of the spirit beginning to be produced in our lives. There is no other answer to this. There is no other answer to the decay and failure of the old vine but the Lord Jesus Christ and our being grafted into him by personal union. That's how the situation changes. That's how it changes personally. That's how it changes nationally. And it is in Jesus that Isaiah's plaintive song is answered.
0: You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.